Hey everyone, welcome to today's Pastor Guide Live. Today is what is today? It is May the fifth. Cinco de Mayo. In twenty one. Cinco de Mayo. Yes, Justin, what are you doing for Cinco de Mayo? Tacos. Got to be tacos on Cinco de Mayo. It's disrespectful otherwise. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think we're going to do some carnitas tonight. Got to honor our, our brethren to the south. All right. Well, awesome. Hey. You guys, we're here with Mike Cosper today. Dear, we're going to talk Cinco de Mayo with Mike Cosper maybe in a moment because Mike and I have spent a Cinco de Mayo or two together, maybe in the Chicago airport, but maybe even, uh, yeah. So anyways, so we're here with Mike Cosper today, who is a dear friend of mine. We go back uh, quite a long time, probably 15 years or so now. We worked uh, shoulder to shoulder every day for three years at Sojourn Church. We weathered many awesome experiences and challenging experiences. We've uh, eaten in restaurants together all over the world. I've learned a ton from Mike. I've read all of his books, at least everyone that I know of, unless he has some secret books out there, like, you know, like The Secret World of Marvel or something like that, that I've never seen possible. Or The History of Americana Music, which is also possible. But all that to say, Mike, it's great to have you with us today. Um, and uh, what are you doing for Cinco de Mayo? Anything special? Uh, no, uh, I don't have plans. I, I might now, now that I now that I remember, maybe I'll, maybe we'll make tacos tonight. All right. Awesome. Well, man, I'm thrilled to have you here, Mike. And thanks for making the time to do it. Um, we know that you've got a crazy life like the rest of us have these days. So Mike and I one time spent Cinco de Mayo stuck in Chicago. If I remember this right, Mike, I'm trying to get to Spain, but there was a volcano and we weren't able to fly in, if I'm remembering that right, or Italy. Yeah, it was Italy. It was Italy. And so we instead flew to England where our hotel was not available. So they shipped us to another hotel. So we spent Cinco de Mayo at Chili's, you know, a true, <laughs> a true Mexican restaurant, Cinco de Mayo in the Chicago airport. So occasionally Mike and I will text each other back that picture. Yeah. Is that the best? Or, or if you're walking through Chicago O'Hare, you take a picture of the restaurant and send it along. <laughs> exactly. All right. So all jokes aside now, I'd love to just dive in and, and we're going to fire a few questions up, Mike, because we know that uh, we're super excited to hear from him today. So, Mike, um, tell us a little bit about your about your story, where you came from, you know, life and ministry. Um, a lot of these guys have, have read your books. In fact, I was talking to Jeremy Treat the other day at Reality LA. He's like, yeah, I got Mike Cosper. We just had him on Pastor Guy last month. He said, man, I got Mike Cosper's book on my shelf right now or on my desk. So um, just tell us a little bit about you, man, because Justin and I know you, but a lot of our, our members probably don't. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up Christian, grew up in the church. Um, when uh, When I was a teenager, kind of had a like a lot of guys, you know, had a faith awakening and very quickly got involved in music at my church. Um, first kind of in the youth group. And then when the, you know, when the, when the, the, the worship minister realized I could play guitar, he very quickly started pulling me in for Sunday mornings as well. Um, and that was a godsend for me. I mean, that was huge. Uh, he invested in my life in ways that were just profound and, and long lasting. I mean, we we're still in touch to this day and it's been 25 years. Um, but, you know, quickly grew a passion for, uh, for, for worship music, for the gathering of the, the, the people of God. Um, and then there was that sort of this crisis moment that happened, uh, shortly after I got out of high school, uh, the church that I was growing up at, my, my mentor left, they had kind of a leadership implosion. 
he got out before it got bad. Um, and then one of my best friends was a youth minister at a church across town, a guy named Nathan Quillo. And um, kind of same stuff happens there. There's a leadership implosion. And then all of a sudden there's a group of a couple dozen of us that didn't have a home church. So we literally spent a year gathering in, you know, people's parents' basements and packing into, you know, small apartments and just we'd get together on Wednesday nights and we'd, we'd pray together a little bit. Sometimes somebody would read a scripture. Sometimes we'd sing a song. Um, but it was very informal. And from that sort of these conversations, you know, what, what if we started a church, you know, and you're 20 years old, you don't realize what a dumb idea that is. <laughs> um, but it, it, it happened um, through some, some providence. Uh, we got connected with, with Daniel Montgomery and some other folks that were looking to plant in the area where, you know, this group of a dozen of us or so were, were already gathering. And uh, so we joined up, we planted, I came on staff um, as the director of worship, later the pastor of worship, uh, about a year later, and uh, served there for, for 16 years. Um, man, it was a, was a wild ride, as, as Brian can tell you. I mean, we uh, watched it grow from a dozen people on our first gathering uh, for the core meetings to, you know, over 4,000. At, at, uh, today, there's six locations for the church. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, we created kind of a whole arts ministry, visual art, music, songwriting, all of that stuff. And it was just, it was a wonderful thing to be a part of. Um, 2016, uh, I stepped away from local church ministry. My, my desire was to uh, look at ways, look for ways to, to help equip Christians to, to think about life in, in culture. Um, so I spent some time working on, on building a nonprofit. And while the nonprofit thing didn't take off, what ended up happening was a number of churches and other nonprofits kind of recruited us, uh, my team, to help them with their own similar work, equipping work, storytelling, that sort of thing. So started a, a for-profit business doing that. Um, and lo and behold, meet this guy named Tim Dalrymple, um, did some work with him on some, he ran a digital marketing agency. And about a year after we started working together on that stuff, he became the new president at Christianity Today and uh, recruited me to join, join forces there. I've been there about a year. Uh, and I'm the director of podcasts for CT. So uh, in the past year, you know, we had big grand plans when I came in. Um, my, first, uh, my first day in Chicago was March 10th. Uh, March 12th, we're flying. I'm headed to the airport to fly home and literally the city's shutting down. I was at O'Hare. It was a ghost town. Um, and so it's, it slowed us down. And so uh, we're still in process, though. We've got some we've got some big projects coming, some exciting stuff that'll be public here in the next few weeks that we've been uh, developing over the course of the last year. But, you know, my heart is still for the people of God. I, I want to tell stories that um, that help the church to become better and more beautiful and uh, and to see Jesus uh, more clearly. So that's that's me. Awesome. All right. I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, like personal questions about food and music in a second. All right. Mm -hmm. So. We, we sent Mike some questions in advance and said, hey, here's the kinds of stuff we want to ask you, but we didn't tell him we were going to ask him about food and music because Mike loves food and like Mike loves music. So, but before I say that, just for, just for those of you that are live today and that will have a lot that will watch the video as well later, uh, when I was four, just under 40 years old, 39, I moved to Louisville and was hired by Mike and the other executive elders, two or three other guys at the time. And um, 
my first Sunday at Sojourn Church, I experienced Sojourn worship for the first time. And I remember being overwhelmed with emotion going, I have never seen anything like this before. And, uh, you know, Mike is the architect of Sojourn Music. And if you've ever been to Sojourn Church, uh, and he, Mike's been gone in terms of, he's still an elder, but or still a part of the church, but in terms of full-time leadership, uh, he's been gone for a few years now. But man, if you've never listened to Sojourn Music or seen what Sojourn did, in their whatever 15 different albums or however many it was really really amazing the impact that mike's work has had now you know so I, I think mike has heard me talk about that before he knows how much i appreciate him and how much i value his work and and feel like he's a true hero in the worship space you know so but but just like frivolously mike so we've had we've shared some good meals together you know we've been to st john's in london and i you know uh little hole in the wall places in, uh, in, in Paris. And so, but I'd just love to know, like, give us your top couple of restaurants in the world, you know, like, man, here's, they don't have to be the, the only two, but like, here's a cop, top couple of restaurants that if I was going to die in a week, I'd want to make sure and eat at. Oh man. Um, well, you mentioned one, uh, St. John's in London. It really is. It's hard to explain to people who haven't been there. You know, it's, um, you hear British food and you think, oh, British food, that must be awful. But, you know, it's this chef who's kind of taken what was sort of traditional British, you know, the kind of stuff you'd eat in a farmhouse and elevated it to this level that's just hard to even describe. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's a celebrity chef now and it's, you know, foodies are like, oh, he's a celebrity chef, blah, blah, blah. But man, David Chang's restaurants, they're just perfect. Um, yes. Momofuku noodle bar. And that's still, when I go to New York city, that's where I want to go. I want to get a big bowl of ramen. I want pork buns. Um, you know, it's, it's just done so beautifully and, and so well. Um, I guess the, the other one I would mention the the, one of the best meals of my life was, uh, Nick Bogardis sent me to this sushi place in orange County called Nana San. And it's just like a sushi it's a hole in the wall. It's in a strip mall. Like it doesn't look like anything from the outside. And um, I, I went there and the guy sitting next to me at the sushi bar was like, just tell the chef you'll eat whatever he makes you. And I was like, okay. And man, that was, was a long night. I sat there and ate a lot of sushi that night. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was great. So Awesome. Mike, I might or might not. Yes, I might. Yes, I am. I'll be at Momofuku Noodle Bar two weeks from Sunday. Oh, nice. Anyways, I'll, uh, I'll, Mike and I, I always text Mike when I'm in New York City. I'll be there in a couple of weeks speaking at a conference, and I'll be there Sunday night, two weeks from Sunday at Momofuku, New York City. All right. One more frivolous question before we dive into more of the work stuff. But um, so, what are you listening to right now? Or what are your, I'm stacking up questions, which you're not supposed to do. Your yeah. couple of favorite concert events ever. Now I know you're a big Madonna fan, so that was probably a big one for you. And uh, I know Hanson was a big concert for you when you're 12. But like you're, you're a couple, how about just like two amazing concert experiences? Because Mike is a Mike's the kind of guy that if you're looking for new music, you re, you read his blog post on the top 10 albums of the year, and you learn about Mindy Smith, which is how I first learned about Mindy Smith like 10 years ago. All right, so Mike, top two concert experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not qualified for the record stuff anymore. I'm too old and, and <laughs> not cool. I, I still listen to, I listen to 10 year old records and I'm like, man, this is, 
you know, that's still their new record, right? And then you realize that it's 10 years old. Um, I would say my top two, one was I saw, there's a British band called Elbow that I saw at a tiny club in Washington, D.C. in like 2008 or nine. Um, I was at a worship conference in the area and some of the, some of my friends who were from Mars Hill, uh, like if you, some of you guys may know Joel Brown and Tim Smith and some of those guys, they were all there. We all went to see the show together and we all walked out of there going, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It was incredible. Um, made all the more incredible by the fact that it was this small space and, you know, uh, and when those guys play in the UK, they pack out soccer, soccer stadiums and nobody sees them when they look, come to the States. Um, and then I would say my all-time favorite show was I, I went to the 20th anniversary uh, of Pearl Jam's 10 album. Um, and it was a two-day thing. First night they came out, they played all the B-sides. And then the second night they came out, they played for almost four hours and they played all their hits. Uh, in the middle of the show, they, they kind of told the Temple of the Dog story. And then Chris Cornell comes out of the wings and comes out and sings a bunch of the Temple of the Dog songs. It was amazing. I mean, it was just, it was surreal. It's the only time I've seen them. Uh, and they're one of my favorite bands, but that's, that's a go-to for me. So awesome. Awesome. All right, Justin, I'll toss it over to you. So I don't dominate and you can fire some questions at Mike. Uh, man, I could talk nineties grunge music all day long though. Uh, so that I love that. Um, yeah. Let's talk about worship. Cause you know, uh, Brian and I are doing context staffing and every single person that reaches out to me about a worship job goes, yeah, we're trying to do kind of a sojourn Mike Cosper kind of a thing. And, uh, so your, your legacy is, uh, is, is still lingering in the cultural fabric of the churches that are, uh, talking to us. And so, uh, yeah, I can just echo what Brian said earlier, like when I am hiring guys, that's, I'm saying the same thing. Uh, so thank you for all that. And we are all ripping off what you've done and not paying you for it. So I appreciate that as well. Um, but you know, as you look back, I mean, you, you obviously not just, uh, the sojourn music stuff, but like your role as a worship director and worship pastor, um, you know, most of the guys on this call are going to be lead pastors and executive pastors. And one of the challenges I think uh, guys who are in those roles often face is how do we lead our worship directors well um, mm -hmm. to be able to provide them the guardrails they need, you know, to, to be able to stay on track, uh, yeah. but also give them the creativity and the space to explore. And, and, you know, like you're not able to build sojourn music without the, the space to fail, the space mm -hmm. to explore and, and do all of that. So just as you look back kind of retrospectively on your time, what are a couple of lessons that you'd want to pass on to guys on this call to do that well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of things because beyond my experience at Sojourn, I've had the chance to work with a lot of worship leaders over the years. Um, and one of the things that I really, um, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is that worship leaders tend to live in one of two realities. They either have a pastor that's micromanaging them, and literally telling them every song to do every Sunday and, you know, and nitpicking every, every decision they make, or just as often, and, and maybe even more often, they live on an island where they don't hear from anybody unless something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that's the, that's the most dangerous thing, um, because what, what tends to happen in that case is pastors are kind of like, hey, he's the worship guy, I trust him, I'll just let him do his thing or whatever. 
Um, and but then these sort of like micro frustrations will just build up and build up and build up over time. And then what ends up happening is the worship the worship leader feels like insecure because I don't know what to think. Um, and then that's compounded by the fact that the only time they hear from leadership in the church is when they've done something wrong. So I would say the critical thing for pastors to do is to set up some kind of consistent context for relationship. Um, you got to meet with your worship leader. And I, I think it's one of the weirdest things in the world when I talk to pastors who are lead pastors who are like, yeah, I just delegate, you know, I, I don't lead the staff. I don't do, you know, and I totally get that. And I, I get like, I particularly get if, if you're in a, a growing church and you're like, I, I can't micromanage discipleship. I'm not going to micromanage children's ministry and all of that. But the, the second most visible and sometimes the most visible thing that's happening in your church um, is your, your worship leader, your, the, the music at your church. Um, in, if you look at survey data, it's often the number one thing that attracts people to the church and sustains them. And it's like you win them with the music and then you keep them with the teaching and, and, and community and the other things that come with it. So it's just a really critical piece. And if, you know, if there's one relationship that lead pastors need to foster, it's with worship leaders. Um, that said, I would say the nature of that has to be, I would say, focused on how, how are you encouraging? How are you developing? How are you, um, and how are you permission giving? Because you said it, Justin, already, it's critical that these guys have a chance to fail. You know, these men and women have a chance to do something that's like, uh, I wouldn't do that, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you the rope to do it and we'll see how it goes. And when it succeeds, you, you encourage and, and, and all of that. And when it doesn't succeed, you talk about it. The other thing I, I would just throw in on top to, to wrap this up, um, nine times out of 10, when the worship leader messes something up, they know way before you did, and they feel it much more deeply than you do. Um, so th there's a there's a weird dynamic that comes with that where something goes wrong and and you know pastors feel like oh, I got to go correct the worship I got to go tell this guy, and um, you know if something goes bad on a Sunday and you're a worship leader you hear it ten times you know you hear it from eight different leaders in the church and you hear it from the lead pastor twice. Um, so I th I think I think you've got to create consistency for those relationships. You got to have some empathy for, for all that. And you got to prioritize it. It's, it's so critical to your evangelistic strategy, your growth strategy. And if you understand the, the role of worship in the life of disciples, um, it's, it's the, you know, it's the critical mass. It's the core of your discipleship efforts in your church. Yeah, that's super helpful. So building on that idea of, of how to give critical feedback um, you know, if, uh, if a guy sings the wrong lyrics or, you know, there's an obvious you know, musical mistake or something like that, that feels like the kind of thing that especially they know long before you do and, and doesn't need, uh, the kind of feedback. What, what are some ways that lead pastors, executive pastors can give good feedback? Like what are maybe some categories that, that are, are the kinds of things that from a worship director's perspective, like, Here's the, here's the category of things that we do want to hear, or we need to hear from you. And then what, and I know every guy's different or every gal's different, but like, what are some general good practices for how to give good feedback to creatives in general? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. That's a great question. So, so the way I always encourage people to do it is you kind of need, you kind of need two different kinds of meetings. You need some kind of check-in that's that sort of relational, may only be 30 minutes. How you doing? How can I pray for you? How are things going? What's happening in your ministry? Um, and that's the consistency because what that creates is the context for when stuff comes up, when stuff is going on in someone's soul, they have a place, they have a you have a safe place to do it. And when you want to give that feedback, there's some trust because there's a sense, I matter, you care for me, you're invested in me. Then I would say the other kind of meeting that you have, you don't need to do every week because it would wear everybody out. But, but maybe every month or every six weeks or every couple of months, you need to have a chance where you sit down and you look at, okay, let's, let's pull out everything we've done over the last six weeks. Let's look at the songs. Let's look at the services. And let's just kind of reflect what stands out to us, what's been working, what hasn't been working. And that's where you can get kind of get into the minutia and say, hey, I noticed you've been using this singer a lot. Like, I'm not sure she's the best. Tell me why she's, tell me why she's in there. Or uh, you've done this song a couple of times. I've got some concerns about the song. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, if you have that real, if you have that, that trust, you can kind of get in there and do that. And if you're looking big picture, it's, it's so much more important to look big picture because, you know, it's the old rule, like you, you can accomplish so much more. I think you can accomplish more in terms of what you're trying to communicate in six months than you might think. Mm -hmm. Um, but too often when we think about service planning and that kind of thing, we just have this very myopic look at like, well, what's happening this Sunday? You know, we, we need to deal with this. Let's make sure we do it this Sunday instead of going, you know, okay, over the next couple of months, uh, these people need to learn how to repent together. We need to, we need to repent of social and cultural sins. Well, let's make sure we do that a couple times in the next six months. Um, so I would just say those are some of the, you know, those are some of the patterns that I think, yep. I think are necessary. That's great. Um, pivoting a little bit, same in worship. Um, I know like when all of the three of us were kind of coming up in church planting, um, you know, we kind of came on the heels of kind of the Crowder, Redmond, you know, kind of era. And then at least in our tribe, Sojourn and Mars Hill kind of dominated musically. And, and now as an old guy, uh, you know, I'm looking at the Bethel elevation Hillsong kind of trend that I, that at least seems like is the thing now. And um, we're actually in the, in the process of hiring a new worship director here at Icon and having a lot of those discussions like, okay, this seems to be the future, right? Like I still love Sojourn Mars Hill music, like that, you know, musical vibe, but this, there seems to be this clear movement. I have questions about the kind of theological underpinnings of that movement, not questions, concerns uh, <laughs> about the theological underpinnings. So how can churches navigate that tension as, as it seems like worship's moving in this direction? Maybe there's some undercurrents that I don't know about that I'd love to know about um, or things that we can kind of cling to, but how do we as largely our tribe kinds of churches um, think about worship for the next five to 10 years as things move in that direction? Yeah. Um, so let, let me take that in a couple of different, a couple of different kind of chunks because when it comes to the Bethel thing, it's funny. I, I can't tell you how many times in the last six months I've gotten the, what do we do about Bethel music question? Um, because they're a dominant force in contemporary worship. 
um, you know, on Spotify playlists and they just, you know, if you listen to the radio or whatever, or if you just look at the CCLI charts, they're, they dominate the top, the top 25. Um, I think, you know, in the first place, you just, you examine the lyrics like you examine anything and, you know, is it true? Is it, is it constructive? Is it, you know, that, that all is the same. And I think most of your folks probably uh, get that in the first place. I think the question becomes, you know, if we're doing Bethel songs, are we somehow uh, pointing people to resources where there's, you know, it creates weird expectations and like all of a sudden people show up on Sundays waiting for the glory cloud and not understanding right. why we don't have one. You know? Yeah, gold flakes from the ceiling. And right, all that. Yeah. exactly. Um, I, I think you have to think in terms of radial impact, right? Um, the, the problems of Bethel, if you're close to Bethel, or if, if you feel like your community is, is going to have a gravity towards that, the problems are significant enough that like, yeah, there are, I would say there are definitely churches. Um, uh, there are definitely reasons to stay away from that music. And so I think pastors need to be discerning, like, is, is this a, a risk for us? Um, at the same time, I think you can, you can look in certain contexts and say, um, you know, we're so far removed from it geographically, socially, our church doesn't really listen to Christian music. Like there's just a lot of reasons why you could go. There's, there's some distance here where I don't think it's going to affect us. Um, but then the third question you have to ask is, well, what's making you do it, right? Like what's the pressure to do it? Um, and that raises like really, really big questions about culture. Um, you know, the idea of culture, historically, the idea of culture is that culture is something that happens from the ground up. You know, 500 years ago, culture was totally communal. We lived in this village together. We shared recipes, we shared songs, we shared stories, all this stuff, it, it, it came in. And like, occasionally stuff would come in from the outside to kind of shape and inform it, but things were pretty, pretty kind of stable. Well, you bring together mass communication, consumerism, mass transportation, um, you know, and, and all of that. And all of a sudden, culture becomes mass, it becomes something from the top down. And, and you know, worship has had this problem for a really long time, but, but the Bethel thing is a great example of it. Like it's a problem you wouldn't have had 500 years ago because you would have had, you wouldn't have even known what was happening in Redding, California. You do now because you have such access to it and because it's being sold to you, right? Like there's a, there's a pressure to, to bring those things into your church. Um, and that's a top-down pressure. And I think generally speaking, churches and worship leaders need to be really suspicious of that kind of top-down pressure and ask themselves like, okay, what are we making that belongs to us, right? Um, that doesn't mean you have to have a songwriting ministry. It doesn't mean you have to have whatever. Um, but I think it does mean like, what's our sense of community? What's our sense of creativity? Uh, and what's our, what's our voice? What do we give expression to? Um, just a couple quick examples too on this. What that, that's sort of the counters. One is, you know, there are songs we don't sing at, at Sojourn anymore because of issues that have come up in the lives of the songwriters who wrote those songs. Um, and at the same time, there are churches all over the world that are singing those songs. And I don't want to discourage that because, you know, the radial impact thing, they're far removed from what, what happened here and, and created some of those problems. Um, and, you know, people, if you're even sort of resistant to that, like the other example I always point to is Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing, you know, written by Robert Robinson. 
who by the end of his days abandoned his family and drank himself to death in a flop house, you know? Um, again, like radial impact, like he really hurt people in his life, surely. And yet here we are, you know, a couple hundred years later, uh, and those songs speak profound, you know, that song and other hymns of his, they speak profoundly to us. Um, so, you know, it's the old cliche that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. There's a lot to take from those things. The question I would ask, particularly with regard to the stuff that's coming from kind of the mass entertainment industry into the church is why do you think you need it? Like, what is it, what does it give you that you have to have? And I think what it reveals, if we're honest about that question is there's a consumeristic, give the people what they want posture. Um, then I, you know, I, I think is, is dangerous. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, man, we could talk about that for a long time. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to, uh, creativity and arts beyond music, because, you know, one of the big things that, uh, that you guys pioneered in Louisville was the 930 Arts Center. And I know that that had ups and downs and, you know, I listened to that podcast story and it was, uh, a, a super challenging experience as, as you know, there was kind of a movement again when we were all coming up to go, hey, what would it look like to do cultural impact through the arts? And I would just love maybe just a big picture reflection on not just your experience with 930, but more broadly, what you've seen the church do well and how you would you know, almost put your consultant hat on and go, all right, guys, if we're going to engage culture well through the arts beyond the walls of our church, here are some best practices that we learned. Here are some things that we thought would be good ideas, but weren't just speak broadly to that issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, man, it's so interesting. Um, cause I have a lot of mixed emotions about, about this stuff. Cause of the way I think, I think that it's developed, I think, um, you know, the best counsel on this stuff that I ever heard was, uh, the simplest advice was, um, was Mako Fujimura who said, you know, if you're a pastor and you want to see the arts, and, and artists thrive in your church, go to their shows, go to their galleries, buy their art, encourage them, encourage other people to, and start there. Don't start with, you know, let's, you know, let's hang some of your art in the art gallery, or can you, can you make art for the bulletins or, or whatever? Um, because believe it or not, like, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors think, well, we, we want to engage the artists, you know, we're not, we're not doing enough with the artists in our church and all this. What you'll find is if you actually have a conversation with the artists in your church, um, you'll find that they, uh, many of them have been asked to do this stuff their whole lives. And they, some of them will have feel, felt very used in those kinds of, in those kinds of circumstances. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to stuff like, okay, what do we do with, you know, arts ministries and art galleries in the church and arts events and all that kind of stuff, you, you really have to ask some sober questions about your own church's DNA. Um, does it make sense based on who we actually are as a community to do this sort of thing? Um, you know, if you're in the suburbs, um, if there's not an art gallery, you know, within a couple miles drive, you know, if there's not a, if there's not an art scene, then you doing, you know, creating an art gallery in your the lobby of your church doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense and doesn't necessarily communicate that you value creativity <clears throat> in a way that's truly 
reflective of uh, the way the Bible honors creativity, which is that the you know all tribes, tongues, and nations, right? You have a context, and your context has a variety of cultural expressions that are already there. So what are those? You know, I gave a talk one time where where, where, where this came up, and you know, one of the examples somebody gave is like, you know, we're kind of a farm community. We don't really do any of this stuff, but our people are really into marching bands and, and cheerleading. You know, <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know how the church engages that, you know, like I don't expect that to be a ministry of the church anytime soon. Um, but, you know, I do think it's a, a smart insight of that pastor to say this is a this is an aesthetic. It is a creative thing that people actually value and are invested in. Um, how do we uh, how do we participate in that in other ways? Um, and the biggest way to participate in this stuff is presence. How do we show up in the lives of creative people and encourage them to do what they do? I would say with with stuff like music um, and art, when there are times and places to do that, um, <clears throat> you've got to believe that your artists know more than you do about the arts. Um, what what often happens, um, and one of the reasons that artists and musicians get burned out and don't get involved in the life of the church, is a pastor asks them to do something, they do it, and then the pastor comes back and says, ah, you know, what you did was cool, but I was kind of thinking it should be this, you know, and and ultimately you're, you're being, you know, the artist is not being asked to offer their gift. The artist is being asked to uh, to do a service on behalf of the pastor, on behalf of one of the leaders. So if you're going to ask an artist to do something in your church, you, you have to be willing to kind of entrust them that, that they can deliver on whatever it is you're you're asking them to do um, and respect the gift they offer, you know? Does that make sense? Was that a yeah. helpful answer? Yeah, totally. No, that's, uh, I love that idea. I mean, what I, my main takeaway from what you said is that we should be going to cheerleading competitions uh, right. as, as much as possible. Right. What I took right. away is that I really think this is going to be the key quote going forward. Is <laughs> Mike Cosper says that cheerleading and marching bands are the future of church worship. And I, you know, so yeah. I, I'm already like picturing that. At, I think in, there's big churches like in Houston, Texas that might really do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. yeah thank you. Second Baptist of Houston could surely have a marching band if they wanted. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, let's pivot a little bit to what you're doing now uh, with mm -hmm. CT and podcasting and and even, you know, some of uh, where your writing is going. Um, mm -hmm. And and I want to kind of combine two thoughts of like, we want to talk to you, give you a chance to talk about what you're doing now. And... Um, you know, a lot of what you're doing is is speaking to cultural issues uh, that are broader than just the arts. I know some of the projects you're working on for CT go far beyond what uh, what that is. So, talk to me a little bit about what you're working on. Obviously, you can't let the cat out of the bag on any details, but just kind of broadly, like bring us up to date on what the last couple of years have been looking like for you, and what maybe the future holds. Yeah. So, a few years ago, I launched a. Um, I launched a podcast called Cultivated, um, which is uh, sort of a, if you think of sort of a, a magazine profile, you know, in a podcast, that's kind of what that is. We do a lot of research on guests and try to sort of write, interview them about their biography, write some biography and just kind of frame like, who is this person? Why do they do what they do? And what's the, 
what's the impact, what's the cultural impact um, of their work. Um, and so that's been like a big, you know, a big part of my last several years has been in, invested in that and really proud of that, really thankful for, I mean, some of the conversations I've had on there have been, have been remarkable. People who are, you know, intellectual heroes of mine and people who've been just doing very interesting and challenging work in our, in our culture. Um, you know, at, at CT, we've done a number of, we've launched a number of new podcasts, um, some of them kind of small scale, um, um, but some interesting ones. There's a, there's a podcast we're doing right now that I'm particularly proud of called Surprised by Grief. And, you know, it's one of those things where um, you don't need, you don't know you need it until you really need it, um, which is someone to, to hold your hand and help you think about how do I deal with grief and, and trauma. And, and post COVID, I think this is a pretty critical, a pretty critical need. Um, and the, the hosts are Clarissa Mall, um, whose, whose husband, Rob Mall was an author, uh, and wrote a book, uh, about dying. Um, he, he died suddenly. He, he had a, had a fall at Yellowstone National Park and, and, and died tragically about two years ago. And then the other host is Daniel Harrell, one of the editors at CT who, um, uh, lost his wife to cancer, um, kind of suddenly and unexpectedly. And it, it's a great, it's a great podcast. It's conversations between the two of them about their experience with grief and loss, both for people who are in the, in the experience and for people who are trying to pastor or shepherd or walk alongside people who are doing that. There's also interviews along the way about other kinds of grief, everything from racial trauma to, uh, chronic disease to, um, the loss of a child or the loss of a parent. So uh, I'm particularly proud of that. We have a podcast we've announced that's coming this summer. Uh, it's called a beautiful, terrible podcast. Um, it'll be hosted by uh, the singer songwriter, Liz Weiss um, and Bob Crawford from the Avert brothers. And, uh, and then a guy named Chris Breslin, who's a pastor in Durham, North Carolina. And um, you know, Bob's story is just a remarkable experience of, of suffering. His daughter has been dealing with brain cancer for about a decade now. And, uh, you know, that, that experience of suffering has really revitalized his faith. And so uh, Beautiful Terrible is really going to be about kind of exploring other people's stories of, of suffering and, and what has come out of it, what, what beautiful work has come out of it, what culture making work has come out of it. Um, we have another podcast. I'm not quite ready to let the cat out of the bag on, but uh, it's uh, a, I'll, I can just say it's a 12 part documentary uh, that I think your viewers here will be very interested in. Some people may know there's there's leaks coming out about it here and there, but it's a uh, you know it's a it's a piece of narrative journalism, investigative journalism. I've been working on it for 10 months, um, so the bulk of the last year, and. Um, I think it's going to ask and, and visit some really important questions about who we are as a church, um, in particular, our movement, you know, our kind of young reformed, I guess we're not young anymore. Like middle-aged, middle-aged reformed. Yeah. <laughs> so some of, us, some of us aren't even in that middle-aged stage anymore. So, yeah. uh, <clears throat> so you, do you have any, now, Mike, I, you know, I've been reading, I just finished reading the old Testament yesterday. I've decided to read kind of quickly this year. So I, I went through, I wanted to read the CSB because I didn't really know the CSB that well. And they sent me like 
30 Bibles one day in a box, like literally 30 Bibles. I got like the, the Bible for seventh grade girls, the Bible for if you have dementia. I got so many different Bibles, you know. So <clears throat> anyways, I've been reading the CSB and because uh, a lot of friends of ours have endorsed it and I was curious about it. So I just finished the Old Testament yesterday. Uh, and uh, so I read Esther like a week ago and I thought about your work on Esther, which was so amazing, right? So uh, so I have a question for you. Are you do you have any writing projects you're doing right now? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, and thanks for your kind words about Esther. I think you're one of five people who read that book. Oh, it was a good book, man. Hi, Justin and I are two of five. Your mom was number three, so <laughs> I'm not sure. No, that was an excellent book, man. Go buy Mike Cosper's book on Ezra, on Esther. So yeah, it was it's funny that book hit the hit the market. I think everybody was like, "Wait, that's a girl's book! Like, what's a guy doing writing a girl's book?" Uh, but anyway, I'm proud of it. The Anne of Green Gables picture on the front of the cover. Uh, oh <laughs> gosh, you guys should see the original cover that they wanted to do for that book. I'm not exaggerating when I say it looked like a Christian romance novel. Um, it had a pink perfume bottle on the front. So yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, anyway, yeah, buy the actual book. It The cover's really nice. I like where it came. Anyway, um, no, I'm working on a book right now. Um, and the, the title is still kind of in process, but um, it's with InterVarsity Press and it's on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, uh, it's not a commentary. It's not a, you know, it's not an exegetical piece necessarily. It's more looking at, um, you know, if, if Jesus' vision for us, you, you look at the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's kind of in, a couple of interesting beats. And this is sort of the highlight of the book, which is he starts with the Beatitudes, which is this inversion of what we think prosperity and flourishing are. You know, it's, it's, it's meekness, it's suffering, it's, it's spiritual poverty and all this. So he inverts all of this. And then he says, you know, he follows, follows that by saying, you're the light of the world. So if we live this inverted life, we're salt and light to the world. And then there's this really interesting turn where, you know, he, he then gives sort of the moral vision of, of kind of refusing to participate in, in violence and in retribution and um, sexuality and all this kind of stuff. And, and then when he gets to the end of that, he says, therefore, don't be anxious, you know, and it's like the old preacher cliche, like you got to understand what the therefore is there for. Well, that's a really curious therefore, you know. Um, and uh, uh, so that that was kind of the the onus for me in, in thinking about this book. Um, how do we understand Jesus' vision? You know, if you and I, I borrow a lot from Jonathan Pennington in this. And if you haven't read Pennington's book on uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it is spectacular. But, you know, if, if the idea is this is a vision of the good life, how does the good life free us from anxiety? How does the way of Jesus free us from anxiety? Um, and so it, it kind of started, that was where it started. And, um, and then 2020 happened, um, you know, everything from the pandemic to the presidential election to all the culture warring kind of stuff. And, you know, a different kind of urgency kind of emerged for me in, in the topic and just seeing that that I felt like the voice of Christians, the the witness of Christians um, in this season on again sort of politics, race, pandemics, celebrity, the whole nine yards, um, it was just really really anxious. It's really driven by anxiety. It's really driven by fear, 
Um, David French has written about this a ton, just fear being the animating principle of evangelicals and culture. Um, and so really, you know, really kind of taking that premise and, and taking that, that kind of central idea of anxiety in, in the sermon and saying, well, how does a, how does a, a sermon of the Mount informed life free us from that kind of fear and set us up for a better witness, set us up to be salt and light in a way that's life-giving to the world. So I'm working on that. Um, it was due six months ago and uh, I have a generous kind editor who, uh, has, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm dodging his emails right and left. So. <laughs> right on. Douglas Adams, has this, Douglas Adams had this great quote. He says, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they whiz past. <laughs> yes. Hey, that sounds really intriguing, particularly most of us have probably done a lot of, uh, I mean, I've probably read 20 articles in my newsfeed about how high anxiety is and mm -hmm. has been over the course of the last uh, 14 months since the uh, bomb dropped in March and we all began our shutdowns. You know, we, I was in Paris during that time. You were in Chicago, all of us trying to get back home. So man, anxiety seems to be at an all time high. And, um, I can't wait to read that book in all honesty. And I'm glad you mentioned David French, great book he wrote that I read last year called divided. We fall, which you probably read as well. That that's a good transition to, and by the way, we're going to have like 10 minutes for a couple of questions. And a couple of you have already asked questions. Uh, we promise to always wrap up by the top of the hour. Uh, and so we've got a little less than 15 minutes less than our, left in our time today. But I do want to ask Mike a couple more questions. And then if you have questions, toss them into the Q&A today. Mike, uh, a couple of just really good books or resources you've learned from in the last year. Anything that you've read or your podcast, anything you've listened to that you're like, man, this is something that I'm reading about or learning or growing in or excited about right now? Yeah, I would say that my two favorite books I read in the last year, um, one was Andy Kolber's book, Try Softer. So Andy, um, her name is spelled A-U-N-D-I, um, K-O-L-B-E-R. She's a trauma-informed therapist um, based in, uh, based I think a little outside of Denver. And man, it is, it is a remarkable book that blends, I think, a, a, a really rich, uh, uh, Christian-informed understanding of, of of what it means to be human, and and what it means to have suffered in various ways, and and how do we heal from our kind of our past, our traumatic experiences, our pain? Um, it's you know it's just a very very helpful uh, and insightful book. Um, and then I would say uh, Makoto Fujimura's Art and Faith. I mean that is that is a you know, I think all of his stuff is worth reading, but I mean, to me, that is his kind of crowning achievement of a book um, because it presents such a vision for, you know, he, he talks about this idea of Christians being generative. And, you know, when we talk about this, it's one of the most inspiring thoughts to me. We, we talk about all this culture war stuff and it's like all this us versus them, you know, polarization, all of this. And what, what Mako lays out is this vision for, um, a Christian life that's focused on what can we give to the world? What can we contribute? How can we, how can we leave the world more beautiful than we found it? And um, yeah, I just, I just find it, I just found it to be really moving. I read it, read it through in like a, a day and a half and then right went right back and, and read it again. And so 
Um, I guess I'd add, I'm about halfway through the Eugene Peterson biography and, and that's as good as everybody has been saying it, it would be. It's, it's amazing. So. Okay, good. Let's go to a couple of questions and we may not be able to get to all questions, but we'll take a couple here. Cindy Watson has asked a couple. Thanks, Cindy. Uh, she says in Rhythms of Grace, by the way, before I go on, I want to encourage you to buy and read Rhythms of Grace. I have been in many worship leaders offices around the country. I was in Huntington Beach at Calvary Baptist, Pat Cottrell's church, meeting with him. He's a pastor guide member. I don't know, three or four years ago, and I and I went and I met with the worship pastor, full-time worship leader, professor at Biola, and on his desk, he has Mike's book, Rhythms of Grace. I do want to encourage you to read that. So Cindy's asking a question about that. Uh, you mentioned direct and indirect elements of liturgy. We follow certain steps throughout the service, directly or indirectly. Can you elaborate on these two words and how to use the indirect officially? Do we keep from making everything so direct that every liturgical element feels like an announcement. I, I don't know. I don't know if you feel good answering that, Mike, but thoughts. Yeah. No, the idea is um, like the way I would describe it is that seasons in your church's worship where you're very intentionally telling them this is what we're doing right now and this is why we're doing it. Um, you know, if you think about if you think about like you get on an airplane, um, one of the the main job of the um, the uh, flight attendants is to calm your anxiety. It's not actually to make take care of you and, and make you feel comfortable. It's, it's to make sure that nobody freaks out on the plane because it's such a dangerous space for somebody to freak out. So everything they do is designed to alleviate anxiety. So they, they get on and they tell you, we're going to close the door in a minute so that when they close the door, you don't you know freak out at the thumping sound. You know, we're going to push away in a minute, then you push away. We're going to take off in a minute. You know, here's how to buckle your seat. It's all like, you know, holding your hand. And if you've been on more than two flights, it's exhausting. But again, it's not for you. It's for anyone who might be feeling anxious. How do we how do we ratchet that down? And so I think there's a role for for pastors and worship leaders to do something similar in worship and and certainly not every Sunday. Um, but if you never explain what you're doing, then an outsider comes in and they they walk through your service and they're like, we're standing here, we're sitting there, we're singing. You know, I don't sing anywhere else in my life. I don't know why I'm singing while I'm here. Um, we're praying this prayer. We're confessing. Why are we confessing our sins? I didn't know I did anything wrong. What's this about? You know, and you can just kind of see the, sort of the ongoing cascade of like, why do we do what we do? Um, and so some of that is some of that is like the some of that's an example. That's the indirect. You show up and you're just kind of caught up in what's going on. Um, the direct would be that you're intentionally stopping to say, this is what I'm doing right now. You know, um, I, we're going to pray a prayer of confession in a sec. You know, again, the airline pilot, we're about to pray a prayer of confession. Here's what that means. Here's why we do it. And then you do it. And, you know, like you said, if you do that to every element every single week, that's exhausting and stilted and all of that. But if you never, ever do it, then you're, you're, I think you're, you're not effectively catechizing people um, because they're, they're, they're not getting a context for, you know, the decisions you're making along the way. So you just have to find a way. I mean, at Sojourn, what we would try and do is about once a quarter, uh, maybe a little more often than that, we would we would have a service where we, the whole service was kind of devoted to doing that sort of explicit teaching and, and walkthrough. Um, and, uh, and then as we went along throughout the year, um, otherwise we would just try to take an element, you know, uh, once or twice a month, figure out like what's an element of the service. We want to just 
take a moment to explain. Because um, what you're just trying to do is get people familiar with those things, so it's part of their uh, it's it's part of their own kind of internal you know dialogue as they participate on Sundays. Man, if I, and if I can follow up on that from from being a, a recipient or a participant, probably more than a recipient, both I guess, in in Mike's architecting sojourn worship, um, I you know particularly being a guy from California, which tends to be more low church for the most part. Uh, we've got a lot of Calvary Chapel, which I, again I'm not. You know we've seen hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ through Calvary Chapel. Uh, I, I love what God's done in California over the years, but I also think we have some growth in terms of, you know, what we could do in the worship space. Oftentimes I remember going to a worship service at a church of 1500 people. And the first thing the worship leader says, as he stood up there is he, he looks out and he goes, what up with this weather? And I just thought, man, you just missed a pretty classic opportunity to, to gather God's people together. And instead, the first thing you said is, what up with this weather? 1,500 people. I was preaching that day, you know? So, so anyways, what I will say is the intentionality with which Mike architected and has taught probably hundreds and hundreds of worship leaders to, to put together worship gatherings, liturgy. So we're not just singing four songs, but there's a, there's a, there's a movement. That's why you have, as a lead pastor, as a church leader, and a lot of people are going to watch this video, study this, learn this. In fact, I'm going to ask Mike, I know he's he's done some coaching and mentoring of pastors and worship leaders, and I'm not sure what he's doing in that right now, but but I, I'm sending, I, I don't even know if Mike's, what he's doing in that coaching space, but I send everybody I know to Mike in that world because of his intentionality, even talking about direct and indirect. Have you ever even thought of that before? So Incredible. All right. We're almost out of time here, but just a couple minutes on this question, because I think Cody McComas's question and Cindy, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to get to the last question, but um, Cody McComas's question, I think is, is, is appropriate to close on. And it's essentially, how do I work with creatives as a lead pastor? Because, you know, Mike and pastor guy, we teach people how to, it's, it's very, Kristen Lencioni like, you know, we teach people how to write annual plans and how to build staff teams and, and how to manage time well. And, and a lot of those really, really practical leadership elements that pastors don't do very well. And so Cody is an executive pastor uh, outside of Dallas and Texas. And he's basically saying, how do we hold worship leaders to annual plans and submitting Sunday recaps and 90 day goals? And Sojourn was obviously a large church where Mike was one of the key two or three leaders, you know, he was essentially co-leading church. And so he didn't really have authority over him outside of the elders, the way I saw it anyways. Mike was like, when I got there, Mike Mike and I were like partners. And if anybody was authority, he would have been authority over me more than me over him. And so how do, how does in a smaller church context, how do you work with creatives, bring accountability, if that's the word that's being used? Like, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think, if you over-administrate with creatives, they're going to drive you insane. Like it's just going to constantly drive you nuts. Like, um, and I see it all the time with, with people who are like, I'm trying to track his hours and I don't know where he is. And I don't know what, you know, this, that, and the other. And I always come back to two things. One is relationships and two is results. So relationships, meaning how is he, how is he or she doing in terms of, do they have healthy relationships with the rest of the staff? And with you, do they have healthy relationships in their ministry team? Is the worship team thriving? Do they love what they're doing? 
Is it going well? That's that's a key metric. Um, and it's, it's hard to sort of put that on paper, but that's what you want to be testing for. And then the second thing is results. Are Sundays great? Is the music great? Are people engaged? Are people singing? Are people proud? Like, are you proud of what's happening on Sundays? Um, and I would say kind of lean into that, you know, lean into that example. I mean, an extreme version of this that I heard a, a long time ago um, was somebody saying, you know, Richard Branson, you know, he works for Virgin Atlantic as their president and he doesn't have to, he, he could have left when he, you know, when they went public or whatever, but they keep him on and they pay him all this money and they don't pay him to work 40 hours a week, right? Like, like he, and he probably doesn't, like he surely doesn't work 40 hours a week, but there's probably 15 minutes or maybe two hours a week where only Richard Branson is the guy who can do what they need him to do and to answer those questions and to solve whatever the problem might be. And I think that's a good metaphor. I mean, again, the scale is totally different, but I would say what you're, you know, if you're, if, if you're focusing on results and, and relationships in that way, that's what you're hiring your worship leader to do. Create a really valuable experience um, on Sunday mornings and create and, and foster and, and make sure you have good, healthy, joy-filled community around that. Um, and when things are going bad there, that's when you need to kind of press in and investigate and maybe set up different standards. Um, but if those things are going well, but he's not, you know, he's not filling out his annual plans and, you know, he's slow to get back to you on emails and all that, that comes with the territory. You know, if, if, you're, if you know the Enneagram, like that comes with the territory of working with a four. Um, some fours have that three wing and, you know, you, you hit the lottery on that one. Um, most fours have that five wing and um, they're going to get lost in their own world and um, they're going to get scattered and they're going to, you know, and you, you just kind of have to make allowances and give grace for that so long as they're able to deliver in the, the areas that are critical for you. Man, I feel like we have like two more. Maybe we need to make this a regular thing with Mike and see if we can get him back on because it feels like there's so many more practical questions we could ask. And look, Mike's not currently architecting worship services on Sundays, but he's done that for 20 years, you know, and um, he's currently making even a, I hate to call it a greater impact, but greater kingdom ministries. And I used to talk about, we were at Sojourn. I, I don't know what you're currently doing, but whenever worship, in terms of this space, Mike, but whenever worship leaders call me or pastors call me and they want to grow in this area, are you doing a coaching cohort or what, I want to give you a chance uh, and we didn't yeah. even discuss this to promote what you're doing because we believe in what you're doing. So what are you doing right now in that space? Yeah. So I, I used to do one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm, I still do that a little bit, but I found it, it better to kind of shift to a cohort model for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, I, I'm in the middle of one right now. I'm about to open up one in half of the year. Um, so the cohort will be uh, July through November, five months. Um, it's Zoom calls, uh, you know, Zoom call every month, a one-on-one -on -one during the during the, the cohort, um, and then we have a pretty active kind of Slack channel, Slack community, um, where worship leaders are interacting with each other and posting songs, answering questions, dealing with like how do I deal with this conflict or whatever, um, and I'm I'm pretty active in there as well, um, and so I found that to be a really I found that to be a, the kind of the best way to move this stuff forward. Um, the cohort's built around Rhythms of Grace, but it also incorporates, you know, people like Harold Best and James K.A. Smith. Um, 
and uh, and then we've we've been able to do it every every time I've done it we've been able to bring in some guests so in the past I've had people like uh, Alan Noble and uh, Sandra McCracken uh, this this cohort we're actually gonna have Harold on um, he's 90 if we can get him on zoom it's gonna be great um, he's sharp as attack but he does not know he does not know his way around his computer so if we can get him on there it's gonna turn out great but yeah, if, you, if any of you are interested in getting a worship leader signed up for the for the the cohort that's going to start in July, um, I'll be posting about it soon. But you can you can email me. I can feel free to share my email with everybody. I don't I don't mind sharing my email. So um, and, it looks like Rachel's already posted a link: mycosper.com cohorts coaching workshops enneagram. So if a person follows that, yeah, they'll see what you're doing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if that's been updated with the new, it hasn't been updated with the new stuff, but there's a contact form there. Just feel free to ping me in the contact form and I'll make sure and get you information on the uh, on the next thing. And just so you know, if I was a lead pastor right now or an executive pastor and I had a worship leader in a church of 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000, uh, which we have all that represented here in Pastor Guide, I would send my worship leader to this. And so anyways, I'll have to say, both Justin and I uh, stand behind this um, man, all right. So I'm going to let Justin close us up in a second, but I just and he'll give us a preview of where we're headed. Mike, thank you so much. And you, we're not kicking you off. You might as well stay for Justin's one minute close here. But uh, man, I love Mike Cosper. I love his his family, and have been amazingly encouraged by him personally. Great friend, but also really have grown through my relationship with him over the years. Uh, he's a ten year younger than me, still mentor to me in many ways. And so I'm thankful, uh, Mike, for you making the time to come on here today and thankful for your the work that you're doing. All right. So thanks, man. Uh, yeah, it's good uh, to see you. Thanks right. for seeing that. Justin, what's uh close us up and tell us what's coming next week, man. Yeah, we are continuing in our volunteer series. So we'll jump back into that for the next two weeks. Uh, how to recruit, train, and uh, empower and keep volunteers, especially during the craziness of COVID. So we'll jump back into that series next week. Uh, so make sure you're, you join us again. I echo Brian's statements about Mike, super influential in my life and uh, appreciate you being here and, and, uh, and your work. So we'll see you guys next week. All right. Bye everyone. See ya. Thanks again, Mike.